0: You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, presenting interviews with famous, fascinating, influential personalities from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s.
1: I don't think that games teach character. I think they tend to reveal character, the pressure of of being in a situation that you have said, this is important to me,
0: this really matters whether we win this game or not. Um, Money does the same thing. Sports columnist Tom Boswell. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. In 1969, shortly after graduating from college, Thomas Boswell joined the staff of the Washington Post. And over the next 15 years, as he honed his craft as a sports writer, he eventually became a columnist for the Post in 1984. But Boswell's strength always was more than just balls and strikes and touchdowns and field goals and holes in one and hat tricks. Boswell brought a literary sensibility to his columns, often focusing on the personalities of the stars and would-be stars that he covered. Oh, he knew all the technical stuff, but his real strength was bringing out the personalities. The humanity of the game. I interviewed Tom Boswell several times over the years, including this interview from 1994 for his book Cracking the Show. And I think, like so many of his columns, I think this interview has held up pretty well against the test of time. Well, you tell me. So, here now from 1994, Tom Boswell.
1: When you look back over five or six years' worth of work, um, you wonder what will stand up after that amount of time. You wonder how much will be uh, foolish. But I think what interests you most is whether there is anything that you see correctly over a period of time. Is there a person or an issue uh, among all those where you may not be accurate, where you may not be perceptive? Um, Is there someone or something that you see clearly and over a series of stories? And that has been the nicest thing over the years to find
0: out that if you shoot enough bullets, some of them will hit the target. Is there a continuity of the game of baseball that becomes apparent when you go back and look at past columns? Uh, Yes, I think you find
1: that uh, there are characters that develop in front of your eyes, that you see a Pete Rose more clearly, uh, or you're forced to face the sides of him that you didn't like before. And there are several pieces on Pete Rose put together, sort of like what we're going through with O.J. Simpson now, uh, not on as radical a basis, but where you have to see someone and say, gee, there were a lot of parts of that personality that maybe I didn't understand uh, that were darker than the other parts, or, or a Cal Ripken Jr. who sort of has to live with something like the 2,000-game streak and whether that's a good thing for him, a bad thing. Is it destructive? Is it uh, eroding his career, or is it really the centerpiece of his career? Is it good for his team, bad for his team?
0: Well, there's a there's a, a pull-me-push-you uh, element about sports. We want to put people... You, you have several names in this book of people who should be household names, who should be heroes, that we don't quite realize what it is they're up to right now. But yet, once we put them up there, we make them into a Pete Rose or an O.J. Simpson. If something goes wrong, Mm -hmm. they come tumbling down real fast. Trying to figure out how to appraise public figures is one of the most difficult things that
1: we in the media have to do. And and people who just uh, watch and enjoy sports. I I noticed in this book that I took a number of pieces about Nolan Ryan. At one time, I thought that he was a fraud. I thought that he was a 500 pitcher, which he was. Um, And sort of coming to terms to, is is he heroic or is he someone who hasn't used his gifts well um, and um, the I is You'd see reading this. I sort of came to an uneasy balance of saying, yes, he is a 500 pitcher who is a Hall of Famer, and uh, they made the strike zone wrong for Nolan. It was too small to contain his stuff. Uh, nature gave him too good a fastball and too big a curveball for the strike zone to hold. So he had to wait until he was old, until his uh, his stuff calmed down, before he could become the the person he should have uh, been all along. Maybe, and we uh, but we do find that with younger players, the Frank Thomases, the Juan Gonzalez's. Uh, this year, Ken Griffey Jr. will get the um, the full. Um, attention! I don't think it's a problem of the media. Technology simply put us in a position to do these things. And when science, we might as well blame science, uh, when you create the radio, when you create the television, when you create the helicopter that can take the picture of O.J. driving around the L.A. Beltway. Uh, those are not the um, the people who are guilty. There, there's no one's guilty. Uh, the technology exists; man's going to use it. So, how do we sort of cope with that? Uh, that saturation, that ability to uh, to get almost too close in our up close and personals.
0: Is it sometimes unfair of us in the media or us as fans? To build, as you talk about a few years ago, we made Fernando Mania, And here's this this young kid, doesn't speak much English. He's up here, but he's a phenom. He's got the zero-point-something, zero-zero ERA. He's firing the fastballs, and suddenly everything in the country is Fernando, Fernando, Fernando. And suddenly he takes a tumble.
1: I think just about the
0: hardest thing in the world to cope with is major
1: celebrity. And if you do not have... If you haven't come from a family that gives you a a sense of who you are, if you don't have uh, an education that gives you some sort of base, if you don't have uh, a family life around you, if you don't have all the things that that hold up and sustain a personality and even people who have those things have a heck of a time sustaining a personality that works the uh, psychiatrist offices are full of people who have, uh, you would think have uh, enough to be functional, uh, but to be a major celebrity and not really to have the basic things that keep your personality intact, and, and so many people who become celebrities, especially in sports don't, they, they come from uh, either poor uh, poor backgrounds or poor educations or warped backgrounds, even if they have those things, uh, they become famous the theater- of 12. They're, they're worshipped as great potential basketball players or baseball players all the way through. So I think that um, I think that athletes are really at jeopardy. Famous athletes tend to be at jeopardy, and those who can cope with that kind of celebrity are almost rare. And those who can eschew some of the celebrity and operate at a lower level of celebrity or, like Brooks Robinson, uh, can sort of shuck the celebrity and say, no, I refuse to act famous, I refuse to act like a god, I'm just Brooks Robinson, I got a bad body, my hair's falling out. Um, Those people who can sort of humanize themselves and come across as normal, I think are blessed.
0: I wonder if it's normal or, or if it's more difficult or, or whatever, whatever it is to become a Ryan Sandberg then and say at the height of, of your your fame, your money-making ability, to say, I'm not up to the standards I set for myself, so I'm quitting. I think that comes from his being a mortician's son.
1: Uh, I once talked to Sandberg, and he said, uh, I forget, I think were, he had a brother and a sister in the family, but at any rate, there were other siblings. And he was the dour, quiet Thoughtful one, but there was at least one prankster among the group, and he he once told me that they did some uh, there were some gags with corpses that went on, <laughs> and I forget what it was they did. I'm not it was not something as wonderful as you know dressing him up and driving him around the driving him around Spokane in the backseat of the car. It was not that, but I, I did think that he had a, a sort of perspective from having grown up uh, in a morgue. <laughs> I'll leave. I'll leave that there. But I, I thought it would we'll draw a our little, own conclusions. Little, from little, that. A little more thoughtful, a little uh, less. The world f- had a little less hold on him. Sense of mortality.
0: Maybe I, I thought maybe it was something in the water in Chicago that Michael Jordan, <laughs> and then it's Ryan Sandberg. I mean, uh, you know who's next? I, I do think that uh, the athletes we've gotten from Spokane have a, a unique ability to cope
1: with celebrity. Ryan Sandberg, Mark Rippon, uh, John Stockton. All these guys have sort of. Uh, been able not to be burned by the twists and turns of celebrity as much as some people. Mark Mark Rippon, I thought, uh, handled um, being a Super Bowl hero and then a post-Super Bowl bum about as well as anybody could. Uh, a lot of uh, stability there. So maybe there's something about being off in the northwest corner that, that helps us. I actually sort of think that that's true, that if there's some part of your, if there's a northwest wind in some part of your soul, if you if you have a little bit of distance on it, if you don't get all caught up in it, if there's something that tells you
0: this isn't quite a as flashy as it looks, uh, you, you survive better. Does money make it worse, or is that just something that uh, that, that makes everything worse?
1: Um, the, I've always been fascinated by money coming into sports, and I think it's a, a potential. Uh, just as I don't think that uh, that games teach character, I think they tend to reveal character. The pressure. Of, of being in a situation that you have said, this is important to me. This really matters whether we win this game or not. Tends to um, reveal your character in relationship to other people, in relationship to coping with pressure. Um, money does the same thing. I love that old TV show, The Millionaire, where they give the guy the millionaire the million dollars back when I guess that'd be ten million dollars now. Then the person automatically becomes who he really is when, they're, when the mask is down. Um, and shows, who he, is he really greedy? Is he really generous? Is he really concerned about other people? Is he just out for himself, and it does seem that that, that happens. Uh, you give people millions and millions of dollars, and if they're going to tell the world to go to hell, they're going to do it, and you'll find that arrogance. If they're decent people, they'll continue
0: to be. I had another sports writer in here about a year or so ago whose book on baseball, he in which he professed some... Someone else writes baseball book? <laughs> no. No. I didn't mean to be the no, one that no. have to tell you. Uh, but he professed some degree of shock that Barry Bonds wouldn't talk to him unless there was a check involved. Mm.
1: I uh, have an odd Sense there that as a reporter, I, I invade other people's worlds, and so I try very hard not to talk to people who don't want to talk to me. So I was I never felt bad that Otis uh, Amos Otis or uh, Steve Carlton or whoever um, was testy, and, and I um, I like to talk to people who want to talk to me, and I guess I'm odd in that, but I I don't uh, I don't put myself in a position where I'm I don't treat other people as objects. Come here, give me a quote. Give me a quote, you thing, you. You know, I'm a reporter, therefore you owe me a quote. On the other hand, I don't take abuse from them. Uh, If they're uh, rude to me, that I'm just rude back to them and uh, (laughs) tell them they're jerks and I don't need to talk to them anymore. (laughs) I take it you like talking to Whitey Herzog. He's wonderful. He has uh, just got that... Salt of the earth. Um, he's got a very high IQ that the army discovered, and he he just reads all night. He can't sleep. He's really a bright guy, but he comes from a a real hard knocks, tough background, so that. All his intelligence seems to be a knowledge of how the world really works. It's not an abstract, theoretical, over-educated mind. It's a practical, smart mind. And he's also very direct, very candid. Um, I'm really sorry he's not more central to the game now. Everybody reaches a point where they sort of begin to seem like a grandfather to the young kids. And... And Whitey has that grandfather feeling about him now, and the game wants a higher energy than that. But um, I would still like to see him have one last trip around as a as an, uh, general manager of a really good team with some money to spend.
0: After this short break, Tom Boswell and I take a nostalgic look back at our baseball card collections. Now, back to my 1994 conversation with Tom Boswell. You know, I do I do hear it said from time to time about the radio business that there are only 15 people in this business, and if you stay in it long enough, you'll meet all of those 15 people everywhere you go. strikes me sometimes that managing in baseball is almost the same way. There's only the same 15 guys, and they just keep going from one team to another. You
1: see a fascinating thing when a, a team wants to fire a manager. Uh, the owner of the Baltimore Orioles, Peter Angelos, uh, is not on the same wavelength with Johnny Oates, who's a a good manager, but not maybe an A-plus manager yet. And the Orioles and people who advise Angelus keep saying, Peter, who else is there? Who's out there? Who would you hire? Would you hire Frank Robinson, who's already been fired three times? Would you hire Dave Lopes off your own staff, who uh, isn't tested? He'd be like anybody else who hasn't proved himself. He'd be right where Oates was three or four years ago. Uh, how do you think you're going to get Jimmy Leyland and his pitching coach, Rabbit Miller, away from Pittsburgh? You can sort of try, but it, it's tough. And you look around and you say, well, I'd really like Whitey Herzog. I'd really like uh, Earl Weaver. I'd really like Gene Mock. All these people are still breathing, but they aren't really viable managers. It, it is odd. There, it may not be the same 15. It may be the same six or eight who can do the job well,
0: and then 20 Butch Hobsons. Hi, Butch. Butch, wake up, Butch. <laughs> People perhaps in more need of an autopsy than a physical.
1: Exactly. <laughs> I always want to always bring
0: a mirror. You don't, don't want to waste questions with, but <laughs> you know, just put that mirror out there and if it fogs up, we've got a chance. You do turn a good phrase. I mean, that, that's one of the things I think you, why you have, so? Uh, I think, just as many non-sports fan readers as sports fans. Because uh, the, the one thing I've always admired about your writing is that it's not just, you know, then he stepped out of the light and hit that three and two pitch. I mean, it's not the, that, you know, that, that deeply analytical kind of uh, mind that we all, when we were 13, uh, you know, really got into. I
1: think you have to have several different voices if you're going to do this for a lifetime, and there's a piece in this book about whether or not you should hit the first pitch when you come to bat. Now, that's as technical as you can get, and I tried to make it fun by slandering Ted Williams' good name, because he always said you should hit the first pitch, and I think that's absolutely backwards. Uh, Williams said you should never hit the first pitch. I think it should be the pitch that you're most aggressive on, the, the first strike at any rate. Now, that piece is is technical and full of numbers and incomprehensible to the non-baseball loving person, but I think you should you should focus all the decimal points in one piece, <laughs> sort of get rid of them. So those other parts of your uh, nature that are either outraged or poetic or, or merely trying to see somebody as they are and you're trying to remove yourself from your concern with the person you're writing about, you're not really concerned about what you think about it. Um, And so I I do think over the years that you find that you have several, uh, I won't say several voices, sort of several angles of vision, and that you hope that only a small minority of those voices uh, appeals to just
0: the the nut. But there's clearly a humanity of the game that appeals to you as much as, if not more, than the numbers. Yes.
1: uh, I do think that ultimately you're always writing about people. You're always always writing about experience, and uh, whenever anybody says, aren't you amazed that uh, that Magic Johnson uh, could be hiv positive or aren 't you amazed that Michael Jordan could have a gambling uh, uh, difficulties or aren 't you amazed that o j Simpson could be deeply troubled or aren 't you amazed that somebody could do something so generous or so, something so introspective as Ryan Sandberg quitting and leaving ten or fifteen million dollars on the table? I'd say no. It doesn't surprise me because one of the things that fascinates you about sports is that you have the same range of human nature that you have everywhere. You have wonderful people. You have funny people. You have morons. You have evil people. You have greedy people. You have generous people. And uh, and so you're never at a loss for subjects as long as you don't think the subject is the final score.
0: It certainly must not also surprise you then that it looks like we can have another strike. I have had to suffer through covering this story for
1: almost 20 years. I'm one of the people who was old to this story when they struck in 81. Um, Now to me, um, I'm not so interested in the details of the salary cap or whether the players get 53% or what happens to arbitration. I'm interested in who gets destroyed by this because the last time in 1983 I saw the negotiator for the owners, Ray Greeby, essentially ruin his career, at least as far as I'm aware of it. He certainly uh, came out of it with a major black eye as someone who who was just the henchman for the owners. Bowie Kuhn lost his power base and ended up being fired as commissioner. Marvin Miller, I felt, became uh, more embittered and was really moved to the end of his career and, and Don Fear replaced him. Um, there were owners who never were respected after that or listened to. Nobody ever really listened to Augie Bush uh, very much after that because he was central and his uh, man named Sussman who was uh, his right-hand man. Uh, and I think this time you're going to find people who deserve to be discredited who will be. Uh, I suspect that Jerry Reinsdorf for the Chicago White Sox, Bud Selig with the Milwaukee Brewers, maybe Dick Ravitch, the play, the representative of the owners, who's already caught in the middle. He's already saying, how can the owners expect their plans to be taken seriously if they don't open their books and prove their case? Boy, he's right there in the middle where some commissioners have been with the owners saying, We hired you, buddy. Stop being honest. Stop saying the obvious. We we you're our mouthpiece. Hush up. Uh, he's going to be caught right in the middle. Don Fear this time, the uh, public's uh, tolerance for the union is much lower than it was. If he says, we like the current system, and let's see a few clubs go out of business before uh, before we change the rules, and we don't mind taking a strike for a couple of months and wiping out Ken Griffey Jr.'s chance of uh, breaking the Maris home run record. So uh, this time I am more interested in whether the central players in this game understand that their historical place in American culture is going to be defined by this, their future careers, and just whether people. People look at them when they meet them and say, Bud Seelig, yeah, I remember you, Bud, nice work. Or are they going to say, Bud, you really did see that you were a wonderful compromiser and you did put the interest of the game ahead of what could be best for the Milwaukee Brewers and your fortune there. So I, I see this, this future strike not as about details and boring negotiations. I see it, about, I see it as, as really high drama with people on the edge of cliffs deciding whether to do the right thing or jump off. They've always jumped off in the past, so that heightens my interest. And in this case,
0: there are several that I hope do jump. (laughs) From a great height, perhaps. Well, they've gotten themselves
1: to the top of the cliff,
0: certainly. I also have to tell you, I only have a minute or so left, but I have to tell you, in 1969, I opened up more packs of Topps cards and got more Larry Haney's from the San Diego Padres than I have ever been able to get rid of in all the twenty-five years since. Then. You give them to me
1: because I see Larry Haney in press boxes all the time now. Because he's now a, a roving scout, and uh, and his son Chris Haney pitches for the uh, pitches for the Royals now. See, I am a truly sick puppy. <laughs> I I found all my old baseball cards. <laughs> I, I um, mine were all from 1957 to 1962 when I was like nine to 14, I guess. And I, um, uh, my mom died a few years ago, and I went back to the house and went, had to go through all the stuff in the house and uh, found that she'd saved my old cards. What a, you know, what a, uh, what a gift. And I proceeded to go absolutely insane for almost a year trying to find out how much they were all worth. You know, I became the greedy card miser from
0: hell. <laughs> But, you know, you're right. In that piece, you said nobody whose parents bought them the whole boxed set is a real collector.
1: They don't even own those cards. If you don't have to go through all the series, one series at a time, um, I went away to a, a, a summer camp one year when I was like 12 years old, and there was a series that came out during that six weeks. And I the, the defining moment for me of knowing how good my parents were was they bought those stupid baseball cards while I was away at <laughs> camp so that I had all these packs to open when I came back. There was no gap in my 61 series. I, I, I mean, don't... what great parents. And they didn't have enough, you know, that was an expense.
0: I I honestly think that if you right now produced out of your briefcase a pack of Topps cards, I would open it with as much enthusiasm as I would have 25 years ago, Mm -hmm. chewed the gum as I would have 25 years ago, and I got the fillings to prove it and and I would have I, uh, there'd be a Larry Haney in the pack I know that but I would also look to see oh I need him need him got him got him yeah a pack
1: well a pack of 69s I think probably now costs 19.95 however because <laughs> everybody there're still people who keep the unopened packs and you go to those card shows and each year according to which hall of fame rookie is in that you know costs you know, some of them cost fifty dollars a pack now. But
0: you don't know if it's full of five Larry Haney's
1: or not. Yeah, well, that's 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 the problem. A nice thing has accidentally happened in card collecting in the last two or three years. They so the greed uh, boom in cards created so many so much overproduction of cards that the um, most of them, ninety nine percent of them, are absolutely worthless now. And they had to create something called inserts. You know, one in every five hundred packs, you get some valuable card. But the nice thing is now cards are dirt worthless again and so you can go and buy a pack for a dollar or so knowing that they will never have any value even the frank thomas will never be really worth anything and it's only these goofy insert cards that the sick adults would buy so it's nice now you can go and buy yourself a kid you i can buy my little boy russell a pack of tops cards knowing that they're absolutely worthless now and that they'll be worthless for 20 years and so he can't be warped by this experience and four or five years ago, you know, you saw the 10-year-olds coming and saying, I'm investing. You know, I'm a little investment banker. <laughs>
0: Boo. <laughs> Tom Boswell is 73 now. He retired at the end of June after a 52-year run at the, his only employer, The Washington Post. And you can find easy Amazon links to Tom Boswell's books at our website, heardeverything.com. And while you're there, check out my interview with Kurt Gowdy. Let the people know how it was in those days. But there was no cocaine. I never heard of cocaine. There was no uh, police blotters that you're reading now in the sports pages. They always had drinkers on ball clubs. I guess some girl chasers. But for the most part, these guys played because they loved it and wanted to play. And my conversation with Joe Garagiola. Yankee Stadium shadows. He looked at me when he was having problems out there, and he said, I said, Joe, those shadows are tough. He said, well, it gets late early out there. (laughs) That's Yogi. And, of course, we post new episodes here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find Now I've Heard Everything on all major podcast platforms. And you can find all of our past episodes at HeardEverything.com. And thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, a chilling and sobering interview with the woman who was Ted Bundy's last lawyer. My 1994 conversation with Polly Nelson.
1: It's easy to show compassion for people that are deserving but true compassion is shown when the subject is undeserving and Ted seemed the least deserving of all. That's
0: next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson.